With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Space. I'm Tim here today in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown, Massachusetts, with Lance and a very special guest. What's up, Lance? Very special guest. See, I'm so excited I jumped in right there. Um, Wormtown nestled with Marley. Marley Davis. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's give a little uh, background. Yeah, quick reminder of who Marley Davis is. Right. Marley was on our program, Missing More Murray. Uh, I think it was episode 27, and uh, she works for the Massachusetts Public Defender's Office. I do, yep. Uh, and you were even on the Oxygen program about uh, Maura Murray. Yeah, that was crazy. Thank you guys so much for... Thank you for uh, providing the insight that they found was nece- it was it was important enough to put on the on the series and you know I mean they we gave them a lot of stuff they had a lot of material that they had to uh, sift through and they figured out that what you had said was worth it and yeah it definitely was cool. um, what's pretty amusing now is uh, your position is a pretty high stress position right at my job yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'm looking at you right now and you seem absolutely terrified <laughs> to to be I am. <laughs> no, it's it's I'm totally nervous. it's totally cool. When we've spoke with you before, we did it um over uh over the phone, right? Any over any Skype. Skype. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's really not not much different than that. It's, it's actually yeah, easier. That I didn't feel like went that well either. So. Well, you never do, as we were telling you. You kind of never feel like it goes well right. until you hear it later. Right. Right. And so this is just like Skype, only... Um, only we're looking right at you, right at you. not you through can, a computer screen. You can, no pressure. You can punch us right in the face if you want. <laughs> yeah, if we get out of line, just backhand us. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also this is a case that um, that I've worked on for about five years and pretty much dedicated you know, a lot of my time and a lot of myself to and that I'm invested in and I care about. So it's just, you know, I just want to kind of make sure I get it right, so... Okay, so tell us what the case is. Five years ago, I started working on a wrongful conviction case out of Brooklyn. Um, The man's name is John Juca. He was convicted in 2005 for the 2003 murder of Mark Fisher, a college student from Connecticut. And um, I actually saw a TV show about it um, that sort of – it wasn't a positive TV show by any means. But it didn't really make any sense to me, this case. It just – there was no – linear sequence at all between the crime and the person that ultimately got convicted it didn't it was just like this is what happened this guy's bad and he was convicted it didn't really make a whole lot of sense so I started looking into it and 
you know, there was a website, but there wasn't like a whole lot of information on it. And so I, I contacted his mom. John's mom. John's mom, Doreen. Um, I spent three hours on the phone with John's mom, who actually plays a huge part in John's case. And we just talked about everything. And I just wanted to help. We decided that we were going to start writing a book together. And as I got more involved in his case, there was investigatory things that I wanted to look into, people I wanted to talk to and things like that. And ultimately um, ended up as kind of a part of his defense team. I'm sort of the depository of information on this case. And I sort of help out behind the scenes with things. And, you know, I've also been putting stuff together for the book for a while. Books don't usually take this long to write, but I'm not yeah, a professional author. No, so. They definitely do. And yeah, things, it's worth it. Right. Yeah. And and things in the case keep coming up. So um, it's kind of taken a, a while, but we're cooking. And but, but this is a hobby for you, right? Because this is yeah. out of New York. Yeah, this has nothing to do with my job or anything. I started this way before I ever started my job. And you're not getting paid for this. I'm not. Okay. And you work in Massachusetts, but this yes. case takes place in New York City. Yes. I sense an accent from you. Are you from New York? No, I'm from Maryland. You're from Maryland? Yeah. Okay. I say things like Downey Ocean. <laughs> okay. Say coffee? Coffee. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, that, that's New York. I, I thought you were, I thought that was New York. I thought she had some kind of New York accent. So I, I kind of yeah. thought you were from the, that was where I was getting. Were you from the area? Did you have any, that's uh, funny. did you know John in any way? Or there's nothing no. personal. So you know, no, no one involved in this case. I knew no one involved in this case. Okay. And I didn't reach out to her until I was like, and I only reached out to her because I was like, I, I don't think this kid did this. And there's no evidence that this kid did this. And I feel like I just I wanted to reach out to her. I wanted to know what was being done about it. I mean, when you see somebody that you think is in prison for something they didn't do. I mean, normally you read about these cases after the fact, right? You read about their exoneration. When I Googled this case, there was no exoneration. And it was just ongoing. And I, I was just amazed that he was still in prison. And and is John the only person in jail for this? No. So John has a co-defendant named Antonio Russo, who is was also sentenced to, John was sentenced to 25 years to life for felony murder. And Tony Russo was also sentenced to 25 years to life for felony murder. And just to clarify, so felony murder, basically when somebody gets murdered in the commission of another crime, and you are a participant in that separate crime, then you can be charged with that murder. So the theory of his – well, there were four separate theories actually of his prosecution. But one of them was that they conspired to rob Mark Fisher. Him and Tony Russo conspired to rob Mark Fisher. And that that is the crime that ultimately led to this murder. So therefore anybody involved in the robbery – and I'm using hand quotes – could be charged with the murder. So that's basically what felony murder is just to explain. OK. So take us to the night of the murder. October 12th, 2003, John met up with a bunch of people in front of a club in Manhattan. Those people included his neighbor, Albert Cleary, Albert's friend, Angel DiPietro, Angel's friend from home, Mary, and Mark Fisher, who was Angel's friend from college. And the five of them um, were kind of milling around deciding what to do. And John said, my parents aren't home. Let's go back to my house in Brooklyn. So they go back to John's house. They're just hanging out. John invites a couple more people over, including Tony Russo. At some point, Albert and Angel leave, and they go back to Albert's house. And then at some point, everybody else leaves, and except for Mark. At 5.57, John calls Albert. Basically, in that phone call, he says to Albert, Mark is on his way to your house. And then there's no more activity on John's phone. At 5.57, 
there's a phone call from John to Albert. And it's the longest phone call in this case. It's two minutes long. And basically, John is telling Albert, Mark is on his way to your house, uh, presumably because that's where Angel was, right? And that's the only person he knew prior to this night. So presumably, he would want to go get the only person he knew. It makes sense. At 640, so we go from 557 to now 640, the first 911 call is made. And it's for shots fired. And Mark is found across the street from Albert's house, um, like directly across the street from Albert's house. He's been shot five times. Um, There's two bullet casings. A neighbor heard a guy and a girl arguing just before the gunshots. Mark was found laying on top of a blanket from John's house. The reason he had the blanket is because when he left, he said to John, can I have a jacket? And Mark and John said, take the blanket. Um, my mom has a hundred of them. Just take the blanket. So that's why he had the blanket from his house at all. But when he was found, he was on top of it. It was like under his feet. So that's kind of how they connected him back to this party at John's house. The one thing we do know is that Mark made it to Albert's house because that's where he was shot. I mean, he was directly across the street from his house. And how, how, how close did um uh, John and Albert live from each other. About two blocks up and two blocks over. Right. All of the people, when they canvassed the area that heard gunshots, were on Argyle Road, which is where Albert lived. Everyone on Stratford Road, where John lives, did not hear any gunshots. Okay. Okay. So, um, what's the age range of everybody at the party? Um, everybody was 19. 19. Okay. And the time frame that you just mentioned, um, the... John calls Albert at 5.57 5. in the morning. Yes. And the first 911 call is at 6.40. Yes. Uh, so the gunshots happened before the 911 call, obviously. Yes. Well, um, I mean, presumably. Yeah. I mean, there'd be no reason not to, I mean, to call 911. Right. Um, unless uh, someone called 911 because they heard the male and female arguing. And, and the 911 call was first shots fired. And for a male on the ground. Okay, so it was for that. It was for the incident of. Yeah, it was for the shots. For the murder. The actual. Okay. Now, Mark takes a blanket from John's house because he's walking over to Albert's house and. It's raining. It's raining. And why not take, why not take a jacket? Right? Why, why wouldn't he take a jacket for, for this? I would think it's probably because Mark was a big guy and at the time john was much smaller so that's what my guess would be i see right and lo- and logic could be lost on some of these uh details like that because you think well oh if i'm leaving a house and it's cold, raining i'm not going to wear a blanket because blanket will soak up the water but you're talking about 5 30 in the morning after a night of partying and these kids are 19 so who the hell knows why someone takes a blanket yeah i mean he would the main point about the blanket really is that the police basically said – or the tabloid said that he was wrapped in a blanket. And so presumably that – I guess that that was like a place where he was dumped as opposed to where he was shot. And so that's really the distinction there is that it wasn't like a dump site. From all of the evidence, it, it appears that that is where he was shot. Right. Yeah. The, the word wrapped, it makes it sound like John wrapped this body you know, in this blanket when that's not the case at all. When the body was found, the blanket was under the body and not wrapped around him. So maybe potentially the blanket was hanging off of him when he got shot too. 
the perception and what the that word wrapped. Yeah, it makes you think that he's. Uh, was the prosecution trying to make people think that he was murdered at John's house? They they tried to wrap him up and then they dumped him a, a block and a half down the road. I think that was more of a tabloid thing. It was a tabloid yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. It's definitely a salacious word, right? You know, you you, you know, you, and there's not really get, like, one. Oh, no, I don't either. But there's not one way to like put. Oh, he the blanket was under him. That's not that's not sexy if you're writing a, a tabloid, right. you know. So I, I get why that could be misconstrued, and it's kind of a big deal actually using that one word. It's really misleading. Yeah. Right. As the so basically he is shot, and the other interesting thing about this is that so John has a co-defendant Antonio Rosso. Like I said, there were four different theories, but the run through the theory that runs through all of them is that John gave Tony a gun, and then Tony then used that gun to kill Mark Fisher. But the interesting thing about this is that that morning Tony ran home. He got a haircut at seven o'clock that morning. He had always worn really long dreadlocks. He got them cut seven o'clock that morning. Like an hour after the murder. Uh, about 20 minutes after the murder, Jesus. if you think that it happened. And well, I mean, the 911 calls a good indication of when it happened, you know. So if we're looking at 640, he was banging on the door of his barber, who was also his neighbor, at 7 o'clock in the morning. wanting his. This is a 19-year-old. Yeah. And he had dreadlocks? Yeah, and he got them cut off that morning. He also fled fled to California. How long had he had those dreadlocks, like a long hair? Everybody has said years. Years. Well, you you said he was pounding on the door of his barber as if he knew him and saw him often. He did. They were neighbors. The they lived in the same building. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then he fled to California. Yep. What day of the week was this? This was over Columbus Day weekend. So this was a Sunday, and then everybody had off Monday. So he really needed to get a haircut at 7 a.m. on a Sunday. Right. Yeah. So at some point earlier in the night, Mark and Tony had gone to an ATM and came back, and basically... I mean, one could argue that he wanted to get his hair cut because he might have thought that he was on surveillance video with Mark or something like that. Or people could have seen him with Mark or something and he wanted to change. He definitely wanted to change his appearance. Suddenly, on a Sunday morning. Right. Yeah. Seven o'clock in the morning. I have so many questions. Was there any other, was there any indication or any report or any history of hostility between John and Mark? Other than this, like, random story that he yelled at him for sitting on a table? No, there was—they had just met earlier that night. Okay. Is there any history of— Oh, I'm sorry. And also, he invited him back to his house. So. Yeah. Right. Well, what about criminal record? Does, does John or Anthony yeah. have criminal records, criminal past? So, people had said that Tony—that um, they had seen Tony with a gun months prior to this. He had—after the murder, it came out that— um, he had threatened somebody with a gun in September. I know that there were things on his record. I'm not 100% sure um, what they were. John had jumped a turnstile once. Like a subway turnstile? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now, uh, I imagine he tried to flee to California after this murder too, right? John? Yeah. No. So he didn't have any... He, did he get a haircut at 7 a.m.? He didn't. Was he awake nope. at 7 a.m.? Uh, you don't have to answer that. I'm just I'm following no, no, no. up on no, yeah. Um, I don't believe so. Yeah, they had just had an evening of partying. or I mean, right. yeah, right? They had just had an evening of partying. He's 19. Yep. Um, without an evening of partying, 19-year-olds typically don't wake up on a Sunday. Uh, you noon. Know. Right, noon. Yeah. Right, um, his first phone call that next day is at 1 o'clock. Yeah, so there you go, yeah. And he, he stayed, I mean, he went about his life. Do you know when the first time law enforcement spoke to John was? So the interesting thing about that question is that we don't have any 
interviews of John from the police department whatsoever. Um, I do know that within the first couple days he was interviewed by them, but we don't have any sort of paperwork on that at all. So, I mean, I just think that that's a little strange, right? You 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 arrest somebody for a crime that you've never even interviewed them for. That doesn't really make any sense. And you would so, you would have that paperwork going through the trial and all that stuff. Police reports are all I would, made. I would think yeah. given to you. I, I mean, I honestly don't know. What I'm asking because I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I have interviews from everybody else. If okay. that answers your question. Yeah. So what you're saying is that you have interviews from everybody else who the police spoke with, and they arrested John, and there's no. Like no transcript of an interview between law enforcement and John. Correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Bizarre. Why would that be? I'm right. That yeah. I don't. Well, that what's I... the short answer? Is there a short answer? Probably not. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, mean, I think I, it's weird. I hate yeah. to leave it dangling for yeah. people, but you know what? It doesn't exist. You know so what? It's got to dangle. If, yeah. Listen, I mean, Freedom of Information Act. You know, write to the NYPD. See if they'll give it to you. If they'll give it to you, you know. Call Tim and Lance. Wait, you saying be happy it exists, to send it to me. or are you saying it doesn't exist? I have no idea. I mean, I, one would think it exists. Yeah. Wouldn't you think? I would. Think I would so. hope so. Does yeah. John John talks about being like talking to these investigators or police? Um, I mean, obviously, he spoke to them at some point. I, I mean, I know that. I mean, he must have spoken to them at some point. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's yeah. That's pretty bizarre. I guess. I, I don't know any of this. That is not that. Stuff, that was so. not the answer I thought we were going to get when you asked that question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We. We honestly, we just don't have any paperwork on it at all. I mean, I do know that he spoke to them at some point, but I just don't know, you know, what happened. You know, what happened to those documents? And nobody in like a court proceeding has ever been held accountable for that or asked, you know, where those papers are or anything. So we really don't know. How? Uh, what's What's his sentence? Twenty five years to life. I hate to harp on this, but how do you have 25 years to life issued on a person and no one seems to know where the documents, certain like what seemingly are important documents? Where Did well, the prosecution use it? Use no. Interviews with him? no. No. So John was convicted based on um, the testimony of four people who said that John made statements to them. There was never any physical evidence that pointed towards John. There was never any witnesses that saw him there. There's no witnesses that saw him give Tony a gun. There are people that saw Tony with a gun before this murder. And after this murder, people that were threatened with a gun by Tony the month before this murder. But nobody um, saw John give Tony this gun. Every piece of testimony about John relating to this murder was based on statements that he had apparently made to them. And three out of those four people have recanted their testimony. And what does recant mean? Recant basically means that you that you admit that your testimony was a lie. Did these people get in trouble for that? No, there's a statute of limitations on that. I believe it's seven years and we're we're a good bit out from that. So no, there's no they're not in any legal jeopardy anymore. Not you made a mistake while you're testifying. No. This is you recant because you lied. Yes. Like like perjury. They knowingly lied. Yes. Three out of these four people admitted that they knowingly lied on the stand. Yes. And what did they say the truth was after they said, I lied about what I said? Anthony B. Harry was one of them. He testified that after the murder, John had asked him to, to take the gun and put it on a street corner underneath of a cardboard box and that a man, just leave it there, and a man was going to come get it and replace it with a bag of money. And, and this whole cockamamie story, and that was what he testified to. Now he says 
that that was a complete lie and that he was pressured because he had some open cases and a child and he was threatened in one way or another by the DA's office to cooperate. Lauren, John's girlfriend, testified against him. She um, said that John had told her that Tony wanted to rob Mark and so that John, um, and so John gave him the gun. She has recanted that story as well. She says that she was also threatened by the prosecutors. Um, her a job that she was going for was threatened. Um, some other things that she was threatened with. And then the other one was um, John Avito, who was a jailhouse informant, who testified to conversations that he had allegedly overheard in the visiting room of, the, of Rikers Island um, when him and John were there on the same day. John's father had had a stroke before that, and he couldn't speak. So this informant couldn't have heard a full conversation between John and his father. Correct. The alleged conversation that had incriminating... Right. He also, uh, not to get too much into the minutia, but his testimony, um, and we can get more into like the, the testimony and stuff because I think it it deserves like its own space. But of course. his story puts them in a different place, in a different timeline than everybody else. It gives Mark injuries he didn't have. Um puts John in a particular place in the the commission of this crime that nobody else t- testified to. I mean, his testimony was so far out there that it just, none of it could be true within the timeline or anything, or the location of the body was different, like everything was different. Um, so he is the third person that, rec- that recanted. The fourth person that testified against John was Albert Cleary, who, you know, Mark was presumably on his way to his house when he was killed. Um, He was killed across the street from his house, you know. He lied, you know, multiple times, changed his story multiple times. He was, the tabloids in the beginning were calling him, like, a main suspect in this. He's the only one that hasn't recanted of the people that testified specifically against John. the four people have recanted yeah. admitted to lying yep. about and admitted to being like coerced right yeah why is john still in prison because the recantations you mean because everything that everything that that you tell us about this all seems to be a like circumstantial i'm, I'm not an expert on it but it seems to be incredibly circumstantial but you can say the same thing about the, the murder weapon that that there is an individual that has been known to carry the same type of gun that was used in this crime uh the gun has not or been found gun. right the gun has not been found okay so i just i'm just curious why where where are we at now with it so right now it is under appeal based on the brady violation relating to a veto uh the jailhouse informant and basically a brady violation is when the prosecutors are supposed to turn over um documents or information that they that they should turn over that they don't, whether that's um, evidence of innocence or whether that's evidence that discredits a particular witness. All of that needs to be turned over to the defensive ex- exculpatory in any way. There are Brady violations relating to the conduct of the prosecutor in John's case as it relates to John Avito. So that's why it's currently under appeal. Recantations um, are not 
you would think that they would be really helpful in an appeal, um, but typically they're really not. Um, judges are very skeptical of recantations, so by themselves they're not really enough. So after the murder happened, the police had to figure out who this kid was, right? They they had to ID, ID him, and they, that eventually led them to his friends who all said, you need to go talk to Angel. Angel has not been honest with us about what happened that night. She wasn't honest with us about what happened to Mark. She said he got home fine. She told another person he left at 7 and told another person he left at 10. Like, all these different stories that she told multiple people, right? And so the police the next day went up to college, their, her college, and waited for her. Her police interview starts at midnight because that was when she pulled up into the college. And they waited for her, and when she pulled up, they basically stopped her car and took her to interview her. And her father called in and stopped the interview. She was interviewed one other time by the police. There's no grand jury minutes from her. She never testified to the grand jury, which I think is a little weird. There's no interviews from the DA's office with her, which I also think is a little weird. But she was at the party. Correct. She was interviewed by the police, and she testified at the trial. So she also works for the district attorney's office now. I'd like to go back briefly, if we can, to um, the night of the murder and when Mark left John's house. And so based on the timeline of the phone calls, Mark leaves and the the intention is to go to Albert's house because that's what the phone call, according to John, was to call Albert and say Mark's on the way over, right? Well, Doreen has said that. Probably, okay. So. Okay. So how long's the walk from John's house to Albert's house? Uh, two blocks up and two blocks over. So a five to 10 minute walk. Sure. In the, it's, you said it was kind of raining. So, sure. um, Someone's probably walking a little bit, a little bit faster right. in the rain. Yeah, no, there's a significant amount of time that's missing from this timeline. Exactly, yeah. shots fired at six forty. Nine one one call at six forty. Yeah. So we're talking about forty five minutes. Yep. Five to ten minute walk. People, there's witnesses saying that they heard a a guy and a girl arguing, yeah. male and a female arguing. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying. I'm st- I'm trying to piece together how John factors into this. <laughs> factors into this right. when it's like. There's so many other people involved. More direct. Yeah. Like right. like directly involved. I, right. I mean, There's, yeah. I mean, he could have had, he had a blanket from John's house, but they were all just at a party, but he was, he's standing outside of someone else's house from the party. Right. Like, I don't understand that. Right. I don't understand why they can't connect that. So from the accounts of the people who were at the house, he, John never left his house to Correct. head over there. Right. Okay. Right. Is that what it was about the um, case when you first watched that TV series and you said something stood out to you and you just knew that this kid didn't do it? What was it about that, that you you said, I'm going to look into this and have it be a hobby and I'm not going to get paid? There were a lot of this. So one of the things that they said was that Mark, when Mark left John's house, they had no idea where he was going and that we may never know where he was going. Except we do know where he was going. Who said that? Um, I believe it was an ex-NYPD officer. Oh. I believe that said it. Um but somebody on that program said that we don't know where he was going and we may never know. And that, to me, is completely inaccurate. We do know to some extent where he – I mean, he was directly across the street from Albert's house. So, I mean, it wasn't like he was just wandering aimlessly around Brooklyn. I mean, he was two blocks up and two blocks over from John's house. And, um, and John called. And there was this two-minute call, right, which, by the way, the two-minute call is the longest phone call in this entire case. He called Albert and told him that Mark was coming over. Yeah. The other thing that I found really interesting about this, and I can't remember if this was in the show or not. The show basically was that this kid was good and this kid was bad, 
and they just jumped from like this party to this kid being murdered. They didn't really give like a reason why other than this table. They said that John was in a gang, but they never said, you know, it, it didn't. It just did. There were just too many holes in it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it just didn't really, you know, there was no like, this is why this person was killed, in my opinion. The phone call from from John to Albert, are, are the police or the prosecutors saying that there was something different on that phone call than what we know? No, the prosecutor actually during trial, because it was because John's attorney asked Albert about the phone call and he said he didn't remember it. And um, and the police actually asked um Albert about it too the next day and he said he didn't remember it either so the prosecutor basically said we may we'll never know what was said so they know that the phone call exists but they just said we will never know what was said but that seems to be the most important phone call I would I would right. I would imagine well in John's eyes yeah yeah but if no one remembers what was said then it could have been just inconsequential I mean or Albert's pretending he doesn't remember because that puts Mark at his house when he was shot right I find it I find it a little difficult to believe that a phone call at that particular time of the day that lasts two minutes that it's inconsequential. Well, you're drunk though. I mean I'm just saying you might not remember it. True, if you're asked. Yeah, it could, after you could be fact. blacked out or it could be inconsequential. Um but if it was like like uh instructions on what to do or like, you know, to kill someone or something like that, obviously that would be a remembered phone call. The other thing that's kind of weird about this is that, um, so like I said, Mark was shot um, directly across the street from Albert's house. Um, then They testified that they get up at 11 o'clock, their mother makes breakfast, they don't hear any commotion going on outside, they don't hear police cars, they don't hear crime scene people come up. They, they canvass the neighborhood and they swear they never got a knock on their front door. They didn't know anything about this and at 11 o'clock they just left and went to Long Island, him and Angel, and that nobody knew anything about it until a neighbor came over later that day and told Albert's mother. Now, I don't if a, if a shooting happens outside of your house, you don't know about it. How many shots? Five or six. He was shot five times. He was shot five times. Yes. Yeah, and his window. If you would look out his bedroom window, you would see the see Mark's body. Albert's. Albert's bedroom window, right? And. The police canvass the neighborhood. I can't. I can't imagine police that show up, first responders show up to a shooting, and they automatically know don't knock on this house that's directly across the street from this. Like, no, of course they knocked. They had to have knocked, right? It was directly across the street. They knocked on every other house. The idea that they didn't is just ridiculous to me. These, this is this is New York police officers, mm-hmm. right? NYPD officers. Yeah. NYPD officers, and and the story from Albert is that these guys didn't knock on my door. That he did, that they didn't know about it until later that day. Right. Okay. Yep. And there's a dead body, five or six shots. Yeah. That happened just a few hours before. Yep. Okay. Can you briefly describe, because I'm picturing, um, you know, you know the, the scenarios of call, calling someone to tell them, you know, this, this, this kid, like, we're going to rob him. Here's a gun. We're going to rob him. What's the, what's the neighborhood like that this happened in? So it's an it's interesting. So you have Doreen's house, which is you know, to me, I mean, I mean, it's beautiful. And then you have Albert's house, which I mean, movies are filmed at. It's a thirteen bedroom mansion. Um, it's huge. And then down the street, you have Section Eight housing, which is where Tony lived. Um, so it's a very eclectic, diverse group of kids, of families, of people that we're talking about. What kind of house did John live in? A, a, a relatively 
big house. He was on the more, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so just correct me if I'm wrong, but he was on the more affluent side of of this uh, neighborhood in yeah. Brooklyn. Yes. Okay, Marley. Well, this is a really fascinating case, and we're going to continue our coverage uh, with you and, and on this case. Great. Um, but just to, tell us a little bit about John's mom. Basically, after the trial, one of John's friends who – so John's friends were basically all put on the witness list. None of them were called, but they were put on the witness list because if you're on the witness list, you can't actually be in the courtroom. So there was nobody there to sort of you know, say, hey, wait a minute, Albert's not telling you the truth about that, or hey, I can testify that that didn't happen, all this stuff. So at the end of the trial, one of John's friends snuck into the courtroom, and he looked at the jury, and he recognized somebody on the jury. And that eventually got back to Doreen. And Doreen ended up, you know, losing weight and dyeing her hair and um, she rented an apartment and she you know put basically her entire life into this and she just she became another person basically she became um she called herself d quinn she started wearing you know younger looking clothes and she basically started talking to this to the juror and basically has him on tape saying that he knew john prior to this trial that he um Things like his boss said to him, I want to see that kid fry before the trial even started. Like when he said, can I take off work to go on jury duty? His boss said, yeah. I want to, When he found out what case was for, he said, yeah, I want to see that kid fry. I guess some of John's friends weren't nice to his brother or something. And so he wanted to get back at John for that. He thought that because John's last name was Juca, that he was Jewish. And he started saying all these anti-Semitic things about how he wanted John to be convicted because he's a Jew and all this craziness. Like this – so it just shows how stupid racism is right there. Right. It so basically that this this person wasn't impartial. He knew John. He had his cousin had dated um one of John's friends. He used to he'd hung out with John's friends a couple of times. So he like was not impartial. He knew a lot of the players in the story. So he shouldn't have been on the jury at all. And especially cuz he had a bias towards what he perceived John to be. So how, how did he slip through jury selection? They just ask you questions. Well, I've been and, a juror, and, and you, you get questions about if you're if you know anything about this case. Yeah, he or said if there's no. any reasons. Yeah. Yeah, he said no. He wanted to be on the jury. He wanted to convict John. So seems to me like that is something that is just another layer of wow. Why is John still serving 25 to life when we've heard things and you don't even have to be a legal expert to know that this shouldn't be happening? Right. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. 
Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.